we are in a series in the Psalms. We are working through tough and honest and painful and emotional questions about our lives. But most importantly, we're asking these questions also towards God. And last week, uh, the Psalms uh, we, we said are so special. These Psalms that we read are so special to us in trials because they give us voice in verse to our pain. They give us the language to grieve. And as we ask God these tough questions without crossing into sinful action. Last week we looked at Psalm 10 and we asked the tough question, why do you hide yourself, O God? Why do you seem so far from me, O God? And today we look at Psalm 22 and we're going to ask the tough and honest question, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is filled with pain. And when you read it, you cannot help but think of another biblical moment in history. Can anyone guess? The crucifixion of Jesus. Because like no other psalm, this psalm has the cross in the middle of it, at the center. And we who benefit from having all the history on this side of the cross, we can see it clearly when we look at Psalm 22. But at the time of the writing of the psalm, the psalmist would have had no idea of just how this psalm would be fulfilled in the Messiah. But it certainly was. Think of it as Christ was succumbing to his injuries on the cross as he bore the wrath of God. He quotes Psalm 22 verse 1 as an expression of his anguish. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a pivotal moment when Jesus cries out those words. It's a pivotal moment in the death narrative, and it's a pivotal moment in the gospel. Now just think about this. The greatest and most spiritually defining moment in all of human history involved the gut-wrenching statement, Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? In the most hopeful and life-giving moment in the entire Bible involves the frightening human emotion of abandonment. Jesus was willfully abandoned. Do you know the pain of abandonment? I have many friends who are involved in the fostering care system. They have kids who come and go, kids who come and go. And the stories they tell me of little girls and boys who break down crying because they don't understand why their mom or dad abandoned them, forsook them for whatever reason, sometimes through death, which still feels like abandonment to those who are grieving, and sometimes for drugs or life choices that are beyond the child's control. And it's heart-wrenching when you hear these little boys or girls cry these cries of abandonment. And some of you know what it's like to be those kids who have felt abandoned, left wondering why I was never good enough for my parents. Maybe they physically abandon you or they just emotionally abandon you. And some of you know what it's like to be abandoned by your spouse or your friends or your kids. And there's something uniquely painful about being forsaken. It's a strong emotion. But what, what, what if this emotion isn't, just, emotion isn't just connected to a person? What if the you feel as if God has abandoned you or if God has forsaken you? How do you deal with that emotion? How do you cope with that pain? Because in those times when we feel that, Psalm 22 is immensely helpful for us. Because it shows us that pain and belief can coexist. And everything that I'm going to say today from Psalm 22 is going to boil down to this simple equation. And that's pain plus belief 
equals hope. Amen? They coexist together. It's not one or the other. Just because you're in pain doesn't mean you have lack of faith. And just because you're in faith strong doesn't mean you're going to have no pain. They coexist. It's a parallel track. It's two parallel uh, uh, realities in a sense. If you watch Marvel, maybe it's the multiverse. But no, uh, it's two parallel tracks. One track you're on, you're in pain. And you're hurting with difficult circumstances. And then on the other track, you have this firm foundation of deep belief in God that he is good. And that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I shall not be moved. And it's incredibly encouraging for us to understand this truth that pain and belief coexist. Because when you feel forsaken, you need to be honest about this pain and not just suck it up because you're a strong man or woman. Rather, you need to eclipse that pain, like I said last week, with something greater. It needs to be eclipsed. Just as the moon moves in front of the sun in a solar eclipse, the sun doesn't stop existing, right? But the moon has eclipsed it. Your pain is not going to magically disappear. But when it is eclipsed by the glory of God, it's more manageable. Psalm 22 bounces back and forth from a focus on pain to belief, then back to pain, then back to belief. And it's just back and forth, back and forth. And then we're going to end with a glorious, triumphant tone of hope. So let's begin with walking through this psalm together. And I encourage you, because I'm not going to make all the connections, but I encourage you to listen for the echoes of the cross within these verses. We're going to start with verse 1, looking at the pain of being forsaken. This is the first pain that we see in Psalm 22. The psalmist begins with a strong tone and a famous statement made by Jesus on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Hebrew word here for God is not Yahweh like it was last week that we looked at. This time it's the word El, E-L. And the word for God means mighty one or God of strength. The psalmist is crying out to the mighty God, the source of his strength, the all-powerful king. And when you contrast this name El of God of power, God of strength, with the next word, it makes it even more painful, which is forsaken. Because here is a God who is powerful enough to do something, but instead, how it feels to the psalmist, he has chosen rather to abandon him. To be forsaken means to be abandoned. To depart means to, it means to depart, to lose. And in the Old Testament, this word forsaken is used a lot of times to talk about Israel towards God. When, they, when Israel forsook God, you see it in Deuteronomy, 1 Kings. And again, it refers to their spiritual adultery seen in Hosea 4.10. The idea is that somebody in the covenantal agreement is not living up to their end. They're saying they're going to do something, but they're not, so they forsook them. And so in this case, it's, gone, it's upon God. You said you're going to be the God of power. You said you're going to be the deliverer, the rescuer. But in this moment, oh God, you're lying. This is what he's saying. You've chosen to abandon me. Now, we know that's not truth. That's lies that he's feeling. But he needs to have room, like we said last week, to express this pain of the lies that we are believing. So when the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken him? He is talking here with emotionally laden terms. Look at the second half of verse 1. He gets a little more emotional. He says, why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The idea is, God, I'm dying here. 
I'm at my wit's end and you're just abandoning me in my, in, my, in my final hour? And the problem here is the psalmist knows that God is a rescuing God. Just look at some of the names in the Old Testament. We have El Yeshua, which is the God of salvation that he is pulling on here. Why are you so far from saving me? We have El Shaddai, that God is all-sufficient God, all-powerful God. But although he has all this power and he has the ability to save, there are times when God doesn't act. Rather, he waits. And if you've ever been in that position of waiting on God, you know how hard it can be. You haven't been, if you haven't been in this position, you will be in this position. When you ask these tough questions, God, have you given up on me? Have you turned your back on me? Have you abandoned me? Where are you, oh Lord? Why are you far from saving me in this situation? And then in verse 2, the psalmist takes it further. He says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. I find no rest. Notice how frustrating this is. God, I'm crying out to you, but all I'm getting is silence from you. Not only is there silence, but I can't even rest at night because I'm groaning and I'm in pain. I'm in anguish. I'm exhausted. This is confusing and exhausting times for the psalmist, but it's also compounded by the fact that the psalmist knows, just like you know, that God can easily come and change the circumstances by a snap of his finger. But he doesn't. And rather, all there is is silence and inaction. And these are strong emotions being said here. And it should, on one hand, make you uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable. It should make you feel a little uncomfortable. But yet at the same time, we have to remember, these are the very emotions that Jesus was crying out from on the cross. But the reality is that Jesus experienced these emotions in ways that we could never fully understand. Because as the Son of God, he enjoyed oneness in the Trinitarian relationship and intimacy with the Father. He had full fellowship with the Father. And when he hanged on the cross between heaven and earth, enduring the pain of an undeserving death, when Jesus hangs on the cross, he was fully forsaken. He was truly forsaken. You and I might feel forsaken, but Jesus was actually forsaken. And, it's for, and he was forsaken on purpose. God willfully forsook his own son. He experienced the ultimate pain of abandonment. The father abandoned the son is something that we can hardly fathom, that pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had perfect relationship with the father, but at that moment, it felt like the father has turned his back on him. Now, the beauty is realizing the extent to which Jesus was abandoned. He went to that extent so that you and I would never have to face and experience ultimate abandonment, which comes when God fully removes his presence, and that is a place called hell. So the beautiful message of the gospel here is that Jesus experienced your abandonment. Your sinfulness separated you from God, and Jesus embraced all of that separation, all of that sinfulness, and he brought and died for you and was abandoned for you so that you would never have to be abandoned like Jesus, so that you would be eternally accepted by the Father. He would never turn his back on you. He would never abandon you. He will never change his mind about you. He'll never wake up and go, you know what, Dean, I regret saving you. Never! Because Jesus died on the cross as you. He was abandoned as you. 
You may feel abandoned, but, just be, but, but because of the abandonment of Jesus, you will never truly be forsaken. If you have received Christ as your Savior, that's a reality for you. If you haven't, then you will feel that ultimate abandonment like you could never imagine. In hell, a person who is outside of Christ will feel the full weight of God's abandonment. Because in hell, God's love is absent. But God's not absent. God is there. And he is pouring out his wrath on those who are outside of Christ. That same wrath that Christ took for us. So that is the pain of being forsaken. And look at what happens next. The psalmist brings in the immediate parallel track to his thinking. Look at verse 3 and verse 9. And notice this three-letter word, yet. Although it's a small word, it's a powerful word. Here is where we see the psalmist start to focus on belief, which I have titled, The Power of the Yet. Just look at it with me for a minute. In verses 1 to 2, the psalmist is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? And I cry out night and day to no answer. But when I come to verse 3, what does he say? He says, Yet you are holy. And then again, in verse 6, he says, I'm a worm. I'm, I'm not a man. And he spills out how he's feeling and how he's being treated. And then we come to verse 9. He says, yet you took me from my mother's womb. You made me trust you at my, her breast. This three-letter word gripped me this week in my study. Because we oftentimes, we talk about the importance of the but. And that's important. You should, you got to thank God for the butts of the Bible, okay? you got to be on the lookout for those butts, okay? Um, that's what Martin Lloyd Jones used to always say. And the butts of the Bible are very, very important. But there are so many times where yet is just as important. But we love those but God moments because it's when God comes into the situation and he turns the situation on a 180 right around. You were falling apart. I was going this way and then but God came in and he changed the day. I've been living this way. I've been needing your help, oh God. But God comes in and he rescues. But the reality is those but God moments happen, but there's oftentimes lots of distance between them. And within those distances between the but gods, is the yet. The, this is what the yet is for. So what do you do if, you live, if you're living in a situation that is hard, you're feeling abandoned, and you're waiting for the but God moment, but it's not coming as quick as you would like? Well, the answer is you live in the yet. And you know what the yet is? The yet is the parallel track of thinking. I am hurting, yet you are holy, God. I am hurting, yet you are righteous, God. I am hurting, yet I know you are faithful. I am struggling, yet I know who you are. The yet is the parallel track of our pain, church, in God's providence. It's the parallel track of our suffering in his sovereignty. And those two things just are. They exist and because they coexist, we have hope. Because pain plus belief equals hope. Yet is for the seasons when you're waiting for the but God moment. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. What's he doing here? He's banking his soul, his heart. He's anchoring his soul to the reality that God has redeemed. Notice the past tense. He has saved. He has rescued. 
So what is he saying is, yes, God, I feel forsaken right now, yet I know you can rescue me because you did it before, God. You did it before. God, I feel completely abandoned, yet I know you are righteous, O king. It is the power of the yet that preserves you as you're waiting for the but God moments. It's what keeps you going. And some of us need to learn how to just live in the yet and be content. I know you long for the but God moments. We all do. But you need to learn to live in the parallel realities of pain and providence, of suffering and sovereignty, and just learn to live with these two parallel tracks. This is what the psalmist is doing. Look at verse 5. He says, To you they cried out, and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Shame. Notice how he's count, uh, continuing amid his pain, anchoring his soul to God in terms of who God is and what God has done. In the midst of all the pain, of all the silent moments, when you feel like you've been completely abandoned by God, you know what you do? You fuel the yet with the word of God. You go to the word of God. You look at the word of God and you say, God, I see that you have rescued before and I know you can rescue again. God, I see that you have spoken before and I know you can speak again. God, I see that you have come through and delivered these people. I know you can deliver again. Preach the word of God to yourself, church. Amen? Come on, let's get excited about that. Preach the word of God to yourself because it's the anchor that fuels the yet so that you can continue on until God moves. Amen? Please don't hear me wrong. It's not that you deny that you're feeling abandoned. That's not what I'm saying. You don't go, well, I know God's holy. We talked about this last week, so I'm just going to sweep this under the rug. I'm not telling you to pretend. No, I'm telling you to get honest with God. This is what the psalmist is doing. Get honest with God and say, look, God, it feels like you've forsaken me. And you said you wouldn't do that. Express the lie that you're feeling. This is what we're studying in gospel fluency. Express the lie that you're feeling and then replace it with the truth. Preach the gospel to yourself. God, I feel like you've forsaken me, but I know that's not true because Jesus died on the cross so that I would never be forsaken. Believe that, oh, my soul. Tell your soul to believe that. I have to anchor myself to this. Why do I cry out with no answer, yet I know you hear me, O God? I feel like you don't hear me, but I know you hear me, because the Bible says you hear me, and if the Bible says you hear me, it says that you will answer me. It's a beautiful truth. And what this does is positions you well to live in this parallel track. To not turn to grumbling and complaining all the time, but to live contently and godly complaining to him through prayer. I can't stress this enough. Look to God's word and his promises and let that be your anchor and preach them to yourself. Specifically, look at Jesus. Look at his abandonment and how it all fit together in God's plan. Jesus, that wasn't outside of God's plan. I don't know of what you've been taught, but that was not outside of God's plan. That was preordained. Jesus died from the foundations of the earth for our sins. This was God's plan. Even though to the people around it, it looked like God wasn't in control. But God used it. And he, he can use the crucifixion of Jesus. And you can preach that to your soul, God, even in the darkest point of history. You can use the gospel and you can use it for redemption. Use the gospel as your lifeline when you're on the dark side of God's will. And the dark side of God's will is, is a phrase that I use that I've described when you're in the orbit of your life. Now, dark side, don't think of that as a negative side. It's not the bad side of God. 
It's like when you're on the orbit of the planet, and guess what? Nighttime comes, and you're on the dark side of the planet, or the dark side of the moon. You know the sun's over there. You know the sun is shining brightly. But right now, you have come around on the shadow of the moon, the mystery of God's providence, and it's cold, and it's dark, and you wonder how long you're going to be here. And you're coming around the dark side and you're wondering how long until the sun begins to shine, O oh God, on your providence again. And what you do in those dark side times of God's, uh, God's will, those moments, is you anchor your soul to the gospel. You remind your soul, even in the darkness of the death of Christ, God was still working his plan. And when your soul begins to wander or when the enemy comes in and begins to suggest to you like he loves to do, that God has forgotten you, God has forsaken you, you take your soul and you take the enemy back to the cross and you say, look how God used that for redemption. If God can use the death of his own son to redeem the world, this is not the end of my story, amen? It is not the end. He is always faithful. He is always true. And the best reminder of that in the times of need is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. At the cross, there was no greater abandonment. There was no greater suffering. There was no greater pain. And of course, there was no greater victory. And that's the beauty of what God does. When God is in control, he can take anything, even the death of his and the murder of his own son, and use it for redemptive purposes. So here we have this pain. And then we have belief, and we have pain and belief. And in the midst of this, of going back and forth from each track, we are called to keep our eyes on Christ. This is the argument of Hebrews 12. He says in Hebrews 12, 1, uh, yeah, there it is. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's saying, look at the Bible. Look at the great cloud of witnesses of all the men and women who have went before you and how God was faithful. Look at Abraham. Look at Moses. Look at David. Look at the disciples. There are so many. But if you don't even want to look at them, verse 2 says, looking to Jesus. He is our perfect example, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross. The joy that was set before Jesus, even Christ had something he transfixed his eyes on, and that was the joy that was set before him. You know what that joy was? You and me. That joy is our reconciliation with God uh, with mankind to God. He was, had that joy that I can endure the cross because you're worth it. Because your salvation. And he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners, I love verse 3, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Are you feeling weary today? Did you come to church today faint-hearted? Have you been praying about the same thing over and over and over again? Do you have a heartache that is so big in your soul that it doesn't seem that there's any answer ever going to come? What do you do in those moments? Well, you don't place your, your, your hope in changed circumstances because those circumstances, as much as we want them to change, might not ever change. So where is the hope? The hope is that you consider Jesus so you don't become faint-hearted, so you don't grow weary. This is the power of the yet. 
So we went from pain to belief, and now we're back at pain again. And that's the pain, as I kept flipping to, the pain of being abused. Let's continue in verse 6. It says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Have you ever felt like that? Like you're just a worm eating dirt. You're the lowest of low. People are trampling on you. And then look what verse 7 says. It says, They all are mocking me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads at me. They're ridiculing him. And what are they ridiculing him about? Verse 8 tells us, He trusts in the Lord. That's what they're ridiculing him about. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue, rescue him, for he delights in him. Many of you can re- relate to verse 8. They are throwing his faith in his face. Some of you have had friends or family members do this to you. If you're such a good Christian, well, why would you do that? Why was that all that happening to you? Isn't God supposed to be taking care of you? Wow, for being a Christian, your kids are a little crazy. That's pretty stupid to say, by the way. Don't ever say that. When you, don't, when you don't let people walk all over you because you're a Christian, and they say, whoa, I thought you were a Christian. Aren't you supposed to be all loving? Because somehow non-Christians love to use this card. I thought you were a Christian. Wow, I didn't think Christians would act like that or respond like that because they have somehow become the experts in what it means to be a Christian. If, if they're using that card against you, just laugh. It's funny because they, <laughs> they have no clue what they're talking about. They're mocking your faith. They're mocking your values. And this is what verse 8 is saying is happening to the psalmist. And the parallels to the crucifixion are clear. Just look at Matthew uh, 7, 41 to 44. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, He has saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and and we will uh, believe in him. He trusts in God. Here's the Psalms they're quoting. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Wow. What was Jesus feeling? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what are they ridiculing him with if God even desires you? Wow. Look how the enemy is attacking our Messiah. For he, is a, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned, but even more so, Jesus knows what it's like to be abused, church. And some of you have experienced abandonment, and on the top of your pain, someone has come along, and they've abused you either physically, emotionally, or verbally. And you're thinking, man, I can't even take this. It was hard enough with just the pain of abandonment, but now your words, your words add this extra weight that I did not need. And this is what's happening to the psalmist, but what does he do? He goes right back to belief again. He goes from the pain back to the belief. We've talked about this pain of abuse. And now he's going to hold on to the belief of God's faithfulness. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. So here again, he's anchoring his life to the sovereignty of God. That God, you're behind this. You made me trust. This is why, church, I personally believe in the high view of God's sovereignty. Because God is in control of all things. If he's not even in control of the bad things, then life will just completely fall apart. I, I have to know It's my hope, even that the hard things in my life are controlled by a good and gracious God who desires infinitely for me good things. I don't want a God who's sitting up on the throne biting his fingernails like, I really hope Aaron makes it to heaven today. I I don't want Satan in charge of my life who desires evil for me. 
I want a good and gracious God who is orchestrating all things and is strong enough to take the bad things in our life and work it out for the good of his glory. Amen. One hymn that my heart is anchored to is the hymn of Great is Thy Faithfulness because of verses like this. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. The immutability, the unchangingness of God is our anchor in the shifting sands of our pain because he doesn't change. Like I said earlier, he's not going to wake up and go, wow, I really regret saving you. No, because he doesn't change, your salvation is secure. Amen? But someday, sorry, uh, but, uh, but God, God has always been faithful, and, and, and someday we will learn. It might not be this lifetime. It might be when we see Christ face to face. It will all make sense. Verse 10 says, On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Notice again the power of the yet here in verse 9. The psalmist knows that God is behind his life and has always been kind and gracious. His request for help is based upon that what God has done before. And he makes this plea in the midst of his pain. The psalmist knows that the, there are hard circumstances in his life, but he believes that behind those hard circumstances is the goodness of God that is orchestrating all these events. This verse reminds me of one of my favorite lines from a hymn by William Cooper. He says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God's faithfulness is as personal for the psalms, psalmist as it has been for you. And when life becomes painful, we are helped by recounting the goodness of God behind the dark clouds of our hard circumstances. Don't allow anyone to tell you that just because you're facing hard things that God is not fair or God is not good. Amen? Because pain and belief coexist. So we've looked at the belief of God's faithfulness, and now we're going to see the pain of being overwhelmed. This is the third and final pain that we see in the, the, with the psalmist wrestling with, and I'm sure many of you can identify and are familiar with this pain. The psalmist is feeling absolutely exhausted and overwhelmed by, this, by his situation. Look at verse 12. He says, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Basham was a region that was associated with uh, 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 prosperity, great fields, and, and beautiful cities that probably had a lot of gambling and other things like that. So it's a reference for unrighteous people. This is how he's using it. Think of like the dogs from Vegas, right? It's this beautiful city with lights, but there's a lot of stuff going on in Vegas that maybe we shouldn't participate in, right? So, uh, so the dogs of Vegas have me, or even better, I'm surrounded by Calgary Flame fans, something like that. It's <laughs> very close. It's, uh, if you check the original language, yeah, it's close. <laughs> he goes on to describe the more in verse 13. He says, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And then notice the metaphors in 14. He says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breasts. Some of you know this feeling. It's feeling like I have nothing else to give. There's nothing left in my tap. You turn it on, it's just going to shoot dust out. I am poured out like water. Everything is out of place in your heart. It's felt like it has exploded in your chest and has melted like wax. And maybe 15 describes it more. Maybe you felt like my strength 
is dried up like a postured and my tongue sticks to the roof of my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. Has anyone ever asked you how you're feeling? And everything within you wants to share how you're feeling, but it's like your mouth is stuck. You just can't muster up the strength to share, so you just kind of weasel out, I'm fine, I'm good. And that's what's happening here. He's struggling, and he doesn't even know how to share it. And as we see in the last sentence, the psalmist is at his wit's end. He's ready to die. Lay me in the dust of death. But the psalmist goes further and look at verse 17. I count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over, uh, over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Yet another text pointing us to the crucifixion of Christ, casting lots for his garments. But in the original context of the psalm, what you're meant to see here is the fight of faith that the psalmist is in. He is surrounded. He's being abused. He feels forsaken by God. And he's in this constant fight. And this fight has left him feeling completely overwhelmed. And I don't know about you, but I love that this is in the Bible. I love that I can identify with this in the Bible because it gives me voice and verse to my own pain. And it does the same to you. This is real. The Bible lives where you live. It lives in your pain. It's alive and active. So we have seen the fight with pain and belief multiple times, and now we come back to belief. And notice what he does. We find a great model for what we are to do when we are feeling forsaken, and that is that we are to keep trusting, to keep asking. The psalmist confesses his need once again. Look at 19 to 21. He says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He's just going back and de defeating all those lies that he just confessed. Don't miss this. There is something about praying while you're in pain. It keeps you trusting. In other words, you trust by keep praying. You keep trusting by keep praying. And, and, you, and, and, you, and you keep praying and you keep faith alive and strong. Because prayer acknowledges your need and my need for God. The psalmist has probably prayed this same prayer a hundred thousand times. And then he prays it a hundred thousand and one times. And then he prays it a hundred thousand and two times. It takes so much faith to keep praying for something when you're just not getting the answers. And for some of you, the tragedy that has happened in your life is that you've just stopped praying because you've lost heart. And it takes faith to come to the Lord in prayer. When you've been praying over and over again and your prayer request sounds something like, Lord, I've been wrestling with you for 15 years on this. But for you to come back again and ask God, would you reach my children? Would you reach my spouse? Would you change this situation? Help me where I'm feeling abandoned. Help me where I'm feeling alone. For you to pray that again and ask God for help again when he's been seemingly silent for years, takes an enormous amount of faith. And when you do that, you are using prayer to help you trust. And that's a beautiful thing. Asking for God's help becomes an act of great faith when you feel forsaken. The worst thing you can ever do is stop praying, to stop seeking, to stop knocking. It takes belief to ask again when you feel abandoned. By praying, you keep faith alive, and it acknowledges that you need God. Look at 1 Peter. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you, 
What do you do? Casting all your anxieties to him because he cares for you. What is he saying is you humble yourself by casting your anxieties. By, that is connected. Those are connected uh, commands. You keep trusting by continually calling on him. You keep trusting by praying, church. Don't let your flesh or the enemy convince you that there's no use in you praying again because God's not answering. But you have to remember, you're not praying just for an answer. This is a mindset sh- uh, shift. You're not praying just for an answer. You're praying so you can keep trusting, so you can live well within those two parallel tracks of life. You humble yourself by casting your anxieties, and you keep trusting by continually calling on him. You don't, ignore, you don't annoy God. You don't. You have to tell yourself that. You don't annoy God. He's not a human, and you start knocking on his door. He's not going to get annoyed with you. So we have seen pain and belief and battle between them both, and now we come to the end, which is hope. And the psalmist has bounced back and forth, and now he has a longingly, uh, expectingly transfixed gaze upon the future when God will answer, that God will ultimately triumph someday. And he keeps his gaze fixed towards the final day when everything will be worked out. And this is why we have the end of the story in our Bible, church. Because we shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised, Christian. Your hope is in the fact that Christ has already won the day. You are living in victory now. And that should shape how you live. And that should shape how you respond to trials. Verse 22. I will tell you your name, uh, your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in all of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abandoned the, afflic- the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he has cried to him. What's amazing is verse 22 is talking about corporate worship. And in the same verse, it's the same verse that the writer of Hebrew quotes in regards to Jesus entering our world as a human, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother, to call us brother or sister before a holy God. It's actually an unbelievable quote. It's amazing that the writer of Hebrews would use this text. The idea is that Jesus enters the world into our pain, into the communion of humanity, and he stands with us together before God and is not ashamed to call you one of his own. Wow, that's amazing. I'm with this guy. He's with me. I'm not ashamed of him. Let's continue on in verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the, afflicted of, uh, the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Underline that. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. These are all things that the psalmist is believing by faith. He's saying that it isn't going to last forever, and I know that. He's banking his hope on God's ability to make it all right. That there will come a day when the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And that day might not be until we see Jesus face to face, but that day will come, and we can be sure of that. When the enemy tempts you to think that your pain is pointless or capricious, the psalm tells us that it's only a matter of perspective and time until God makes it all new. And then notice how it ends. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn, the Lord, uh, turn to the Lord, and all the families and nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. 
Do you hear the echo of the Great Commission? Do you hear the calls of Revelation 7 where every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language is gathered? If you're a racist, you will not like heaven. Because every tribe, every tongue is equally before the throne of God, worshiping the King of Kings. Amen? He continues in verse 9. All the prosperous of the earth and eat, uh, 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 of the earth eat and worship before him, shall bow and all go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn. That he has done it. Underline that. He has done it. In other words, it is finished. It is done. He will make all things new. Remember where this verse began, this uh, chapter began. Why have you forsaken me? I'm crying out to you, Lord, wondering why you're not doing anything. And now what does the psalmist say? He ends with a renewed faith. He has done it. The crucifixion of Jesus has not, it was not only the forsaking of the Son, but it was also the completion of God's plan. God accomplished our redemption through the forsaking of his Son. A moment of forsakenness became the means of God's eternal purpose. Aren't you grateful for Psalm 22? Because it lays out a beautiful pattern for us as believers with so many gospel overtones for those who are feeling forsaken today for those who are feeling abused, and for those who are feeling overwhelmed. The psalmist shows us that the pain and belief do indeed coexist. Forsakenness is not ultimate. In fact, it can be redemptive. Forsakenness can be redemptive. If you ever dealt that, I would simply point you back to the cross, and you will see the greatest display of redemption through the greatest display of forsakenness. So when you feel forsaken, take heart in the message of this psalm and take heart in the message of the cross because forsakenness ultimately ends with victory in God. Amen?